This is Upfront on the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani. Thank you so much for joining us today. The first ever Africa Climate Summit was held in Kenya with African leaders raising the alarm on the impact of climate change to the continent. On a continent as young as Africa, it is impossible to imagine the future without the youth. Our young men and women in every African country are the primary stakeholders who will define and drive our agenda for green transformation and sustainable opportunities. That is Kenyan President William Ruto at the end of the Africa Climate Change Conference in Nairobi, where heads of states and hundreds of environmental activists converged to discuss the issue of climate change on the continent. In Nigeria, the Electoral Commission announced earlier this year that 71 million young Nigerians had registered to vote. However, at the end of the elections, figures showed a record low voter turnout. So people are having to choose, do I invest my energies into participating in governance issues and holding leaders accountable, or do I look for food to eat? Um, and that's really what it is right now. And at the end of the day, the battle for survival would always, always win. Evelyn Epele joins us to talk about her research on some of the causes of voter apathy in Nigeria and how this impacts citizens' participation in governance. But first, let's hear from you, our listeners. We asked you about climate change, some of the causes, your understanding of climate change and impact on your society. Uh, my name is Olupot Andrew. Uh, to me, I think climate change is the uh, drastic change in uh, climatic patterns over a long period of time. In, in Africa currently, the, those drastic changes have affected in a ne- negative way. It has affected the, the agricultural economy in that those that are in the rural areas are basically poor people and they can't, and they can't uh, adapt to the uh, modern kind of farming technology of irrigation. So they're phased out, out of agriculture and maybe they they go into going into urban areas doing odd jobs of security guards and even traveling abroad. My name is Achol Elizabeth and I'm from South Sudan. Okay, when I'm to talk about climate change, it leads to like if there's not there's no rain, people will not like plant, people will not do agriculture because the land the land is dry and then also, when it is start raining too much, in our country is like a flood, flood land. So there's also a lot of floods and all, all those things. Of course, because I remember 20, um, if not 2017 or 20-something, there was too much floods in, in South Sudan. And then a lot of people died. The, 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 the flood was too much to the extent of when you could not see the roof of the houses. So people died, animals died. Many thanks to all of you for sending in your opinions. This is Upfront on the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani. Now, experts say that 17 of the world's 20 countries most impacted by climate change are in Africa. And while the world's 20 richest nations produce 80% of the world's carbon emissions that are driving climate change, These statistics were on the minds of African leaders and civil society activists 
who converged in Nairobi last week to advocate for new financing architecture to help fight the impact of climate change on the continent. The meeting also called for more youth engagement in the climate change conversation. Joseph Nguthiru is the founder of Higher Park Ecotech, a startup that is transforming the water hythens plant, an aquatic weed that is found in local water bodies like Lake Naivasha. They're transforming it into biodegradable alternatives for single-use plastic products. A delegate at the climate summit, Nguthiru joined me to talk about the role of Africa's youth in fighting climate change. Joseph, let's talk a little bit about your uh, your company, Higher Pack, and how you are transforming the the water hyacinth uh, plant, uh, uh, which has been said is one of the the, the most problematic uh, aquatic weeds uh, into biodegradable alternatives. Uh, talk to us about the the kind of work you're doing and what inspired you to actually start doing this. By profession, I'm an engineer, civil and environmental engineer. The specialty not in environmental engineering. So a uh, while back, my classmates and I had gone to a class trip on Lake Naivasha, Kenya, and we got stuck in the lake for close to five hours uh, because of hyacinth, the weed surrounding our boat. And, you know, as an engineer, I'm trying to be a problem solver, but then that was a problem I could not solve. So we had to look over ways, and the most disheartening thing of being stuck in the lake was not even about us, although it was scary. It was about the people who, had, who were fishermen who had fished the whole night and they were trying to come out of the lake. But they were stuck in the same predicament as us because of the hyacinth. And now we figured out that if these people continue to have this life, then it's, you know, it's unbearable. It's, it's sad. So we had to do something about it. And to do something about it, uh, we I come from Nairobi and one of the biggest problems Nairobi has is pollution. Uh, and we tried to connect, connect one problem to the other. And we realized that, you know, we could probably use Hassan for for plastics, uh, for single-use plastic replacement because we have a ban of plastics. And the problem was that when Kenya banned the plastic bags, the government did not give people an alternative uh, product to use. Not, not necessarily because of the amount of money we make, but because of the impact it will create in um, eliminating higher things and, uh, and, and reducing plastic waste emissions. Let me ask you about the Nairobi Declaration. What are some of the recommendations that were contained in the in this declaration? Uh, the Nairobi Declaration is supposed to be a voice of the African heads of states and uh, how they feel, uh, the, how they feel and where their stand is on the whole climate change subject. And this is supposed to be the, the Africa's standing point when we go forward to the to COP28 and the consecutive discussions. Mostly the, the, the discussions that were in the declaration involved the compensation for African states mm. and how we can increase the amount of the amount of money that goes into adaptation. Okay. And what kind of reforms is it calling for in terms of uh, the, the climate change finance architecture? So uh, on the global level, so there were two declarations. So the first one was done by the youth after the Youth Africa Youth Assembly. In the global architecture, we'll highlight the, some key points. From the youth, we had, uh, we had this uh, uh, discussion where we wanted a green bank where the youth can access funding for their for their climate change projects 
and the AFDB, Africa Development Bank, gave out uh, an intention to to provide funding in some some sort, one or another, and the system is being set up. Uh, this was declared by the AFDB president. And in the other document that was done by the heads of state, there was a, the discussion was to at least at least double the amount of money that goes into climate change adaptation uh, because we find out that most money that goes into climate change goes into uh, mitig- mitigation and Africa is not suffering necessarily from mitigation but rather from adaptation because we are bearing the brunt of the climate change uh, effect. And Joseph, why was it important that Africa spoke with one voice on this issue of uh, climate change? Since Africa got uh, uh, got independence, basically, we have been sidelined from the international stage. And you will find out that um, we tend not to speak on this on the same uh, on the same level on very many uh, very many incidences. So this was the first of its kind where we had gathered together African uh, heads of state. And you didn't realize that even in this one, uh, one of the misses was that we were not able to bring up all uh, African heads of state here. Yet they were invited. And uh, that goes on to tell you that we are not so united. But this was a success considering that uh, we had a number of them attending. I think they were roughly 20. I'm not so sure, but about 20. And the success in this was that we had uh, COP28 and the other COPs and everything else, including Paris Agreement, and this were done as a global thing. So they featured global issues. But this one specifically, the success that could be attributed to this one was that it was an African thing. Uh, the whole globe does not suffer from uh, lack of funding and adaptation, but Africa does. We also have conversations on how can we improve Africa's green uh, green energy transition. And uh, you'll find out that uh, most presidents want to transition to that, but they don't have enough funding. Going forward into the, into the summits that are coming up, uh, we at least have an agenda that is common to Africans that we can present as a united voice, as a united front. You're listening to Upfront on The Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vongani. We're still chatting with Joseph Nguthiru, the founder of Higher Park Ecotech. Joseph was also a delegate at the Climate Summit in Nairobi, Kenya, that concluded recently. Among some of the recommendations made by the summit was for more youth engagement in fighting climate change. You know, Africa is the youngest continent, obviously, uh, highest population of young people around the world. What can you tell us about some of the things that our young Africans are doing to mitigate the impact of climate change? Thank you so much. So, yeah, our median age is 19 years, and that can be seen in two angles. So, number one, it's a good thing because it means that we have potential to do something, you know, and number two, it might be seen as a bad thing because it means that you have more people being affected who are in the space that they can be productive, that they are going to be affected, so they're not going to be as productive as they're supposed to be. How we are looking at the youthful engagement? So uh, we have a lot of innovations. I started by mentioning what I do. Uh, for example, uh, we have a really big and one of the most fixed bans on plastic here in, here in Kenya, plastic, single-use plastic bags. 
and I have a startup that is directly feeding into that and uh, creating the alternatives for plastic uh, by creating biodegradable solutions. Uh, we have a problem, for example, of forest fires that is global. Uh, you've seen what happened in Maui, Hawaii. You saw what, what is happening in Greece, Canada, Australia, somewhere back, and so on. And uh, we are creating solutions for that. We, are, we have very innovative people who are creating solutions to electric vehicles, electric bikes. We have some really big industries here. And the fact that we are developing means that you need more energy. And more energy sources and having more energy sources means we have to look for a way of how we can create this energy but not using fossil fuels, using renewable uh, sources of energy to create this new energy for industrialization because we are entering into the prime of industrialization here in Africa. So we produce these raw materials that are necessary for uh, like uranium and others that are necessary for making uh, really good uh, renewable energy sources and you see, like, DRC has so many minerals and so on. We can produce, Africa has the potential to produce its own solar panels, its own lithium batteries and so on. So, ideally, the cost of electric vehicles in Kenya, consider, uh, sorry, in Africa, considering the fact that we can produce our own lithium batteries, should be lower and should be really cheap. We have so many sources of, uh, we have so many rivers, so we can produce a lot of hydroelectric energy. So we do not have enough reason to, to use coal. And these are some of the transitions, basic transitions that we are speaking about here in Africa. So in this useful uh, age and the transition that we are having into technology and so on, this means that we have the potential to move uh, um, economically into industrialization that with efficient energy sources and such. In case you're just joining us, we are chatting with Joseph Nguthiru, the founder of Higher Park Ecotech a startup in Kenya that is transforming the water hyacinth plant that is an aquatic weed that is found in local water bodies. Uh, what are some of the ways to see the impact, visually, the impact of climate change so that we're not just talking about it in the abstract? So right now, uh, we are, we've started the week that is going to be the start of the El Nino rain. Uh, that cannot ideally be blamed on to mankind 100%. But uh, El Nino has a lot to do with climate change. And um, before now, we've had five failed rainy seasons, and we were entering our sixth one. And basically what this means is that this is the worst that we have had uh, for the last 40 years since we started the proper recording of the rainfall data in the country. We've had some really, really, really big issues, cattle dying, uh, if you've been following what's happening in the country, we've had a lot of protests in the streets and so on, and, uh, and uh, this has been attributed to the rising food prices. Yes, there's a bit of inflation and the Russia-Ukraine war, but also what we are supposed to be harvesting is in terms of, of products like maize, sugarcane, and so on, we are not getting the same amount of harvest that you are, you've been used to getting, you know? Um, Climate change to Kenya means uh, refers to uh, calamities like the locusts, which have been coming and invading us. You know, that might be natural, yes, but as well as you see, we still attribute some of the issues like um, uh, the heat, the heat that is that is uh, that is uh, not necessarily called the heat wave, but the rising temperatures that we are having in the country, making some of the places uh, unlivable. 
and that means you have people moving from their homes or their home habitat to other places in search for better for better pastures. That has a direct influence and a direct effect to the rising uh, uh, rural urban migration. And what that means for cities like Nairobi and maybe Dar es Salaam and Lagos, that means in the next couple of years, uh, maybe in a projection of 20, 30 years, if rural areas continue being un- uninhabitable, the cities are going to be so populated that you're going to have new problems, you know, uh, problems that you're not uh, prepared for, congestion and everything else. What's up, Africa? You are listening to Upfront on The Voice of America. Last week, Nigeria's presidential election tribunal rejected challenges by the opposition to the poor results of February's vote. The main complaint for the opposition was that there were irregularities in the voting process. Nigerians went to the poll in late February of this year to choose a new president and members of parliament. However, the process was marred by low voter turnout, even though the Independent Electoral Commission had announced the record-breaking registration of 93 million new voters. Evelyn Epele is with the Citizens Participation and Governance Capstone Group of the School of Politics, Policy and Governance in Lagos, Nigeria. She joins me to talk about the results of research that was carried out by the group to determine some of the root causes of low voter turnout especially among the youth. So, so Evelyn, uh, the Independent National Electoral Commission of, uh, of Nigeria, which is the electoral body, uh, it said that uh, there was high increase in voter registration for this year, 2023. Um, and, and we saw so many drives uh, for, to get young people, to get people across the board to register to vote. Um, how then do we explain that there was such low voter turnout, uh, especially among the youth in this last election? Well, Jackson, I would say because I covered the election on the field and I just want to speak about some of the experiences that I had covering the election uh, in Nasarawa State, which is just an outskirts uh, from Abuja. What I would say is that there were a lot of technicalities, and I'm calling that technicalities because I see how there's room for improvement as well. So the first thing is a lot of um, electoral officials did not arrive early enough um, to even begin the process. And with the high numbers, if we are to, if everyone is to, you know, get accredited, get validated and vote on the same day in a country with more than 200 million people and more than 90 million registered users, we might need more than 24 hours for that, Um, especially since the voting process is done manually. I tried to time how long it took me personally to vote, um, right from when I arrived the, the polling unit to when I actually cast my vote. Um, and when I got validated um, to the time that I put in the ballot, it took me somewhere around 30 minutes um, for that process. So I can't be as realistically say uh, from polling unit to polling unit how long it took each person to vote. But a lot of people were present at the polling unit even up until the close of of the day and didn't have an opportunity to vote. Um, So the low voter turnout that was um, reflected does not necessarily mean that voters did not, quote-unquote, turn out and show up at the polling station. But due to all of these technicalities, like the late arrival of officials, late arrival of materials in some places, the arguments that went on in some polling units that resulted um, in chaos, 
before all of that was resolved and people could vote, even the timing for voting ran out. And so lots of people were at the polling unit, but they didn't even have the opportunity to cast their vote. Um, so I don't know that we can say categorically that there was like low voter turnout because lots of people turned out to vote. So you would say that probably the system did not work. The electoral system did not work. The INEC was not prepared to handle the traffic of people who were coming to the polls. That could be one of the issues, really. Um, and I would also say that there's a huge role, uh, the role of technology and what technology can do for us became even apparent. Um, some of the manual procedures that, that were happening during the election, I feel if we can innovate to a place where uh, people can use technology to make the process faster, that would also create room for more people to have the opportunity to vote. So yes, um, the voter turnout situation was very uh, uh, sort of tricky because polling units, lots of people turned out to vote, but lots of people did not have the opportunity to actually cast their ballots. Um, and it was just, it was such a sad situation. What have been some of the reactions on the streets in regards to the failures of of, of uh, INEC in terms of handling uh, the, the elections and how confident uh, were people that this, this, this body would hold a free, is able to hold a free and fair election? Well, it was, it's, very, it's been very polarizing, I must be honest with you. Um, and it's the polarity that we're sensing now is simple. This election was very, very unique in its context. Um, the three the top three uh, uh, at the end of the election, the APC, the PDP, and the Labour Party, um, really had, would I call it, rather equal chances at the poll, and it split the vote. Um, if you see the results of the election, where the top three uh, runners in the presidential election each won 12 states of the 36 states of Nigeria. So we can confidently say from that data that each of them owned a third um, of the general population. And so what, what is happening now is the one-third that voted the APC that's now in power are those who aren't necessarily making any complaints. And then all the, the rest of the complaints is coming from two-thirds of the country um, that was split between the PDP and the Labour Party. So you're right to say what you're saying because the majority of the people are in discontent. Um, because nearly 60% of the people who voted did not vote the APC. So that's the majority. And that 60% belongs to the PDP and the Labour Party and then the rest of the other parties um, that also participated in the election. So there's a lot of discontent that's coming from all those quarters. Um, and so it builds up now to a discontent from the majority. So that's what's going on. And it's unique because we haven't really seen... Um, an election outcome like the one that we saw in the 2023 general election. Um, and everyone really is putting this on INEC because there were a lot of uh, things that happened on the day of the election day that caused people to feel aggrieved. One of such was, I personally didn't even know when the election results, um, the final results announcement was made because it was done at a very odd hour where people were still fast asleep. Um, and pe a lot of people just woke up and read the news uh, after the fact, after the fact that it had already happened. And so a lot of people still feel sad and disenfranchised by that process. Mm. Um, also, 
there was a mandate from a, a promise that was made from the Independent National Electoral Commission, which was the introduction of um, a, a reporting of votes from the polling units, and that didn't happen. Um, we we had a situation where votes from the polling units were not reported in real time as people were promised before the election. Mm. So people felt that we were met with the the olden, you know, the status quo where election results would have a very high chance of being manipulated going from the polling unit to the coalition center because they weren't reported on time. Right. And that's even some of the basis for the uh, the petitions that we see now uh, in the courts, which is people are still insisting that despite the introduction of technology, we still did not meet the goal of reporting results live from the polling unit. Correct. Because the goal mm. was to capture results live from the polling unit. And honestly, we didn't see that happening. So INEC did not live up to some of uh, the promises on the innovations they were making for this current uh, this past election. But uh, let me ask you this finally. Well, what issues were driving especially the youth vote? And, and what happens now that they didn't actually turn out, or even if they did turn out, they were not reflected in the poll numbers? You know, right now I see a sense of, uh, would I call it apathy? I don't know that it's apathy, but really we have a very unique situation. The last time that we spoke, Jackson, I told you the issue with the new Naira notes that were introduced uh, shortly before the election happened. And it's really been a battle um, of, of, you know, would I call it an opportunity cost where you have to uh, battle between actively participating in governance issues and holding leaders accountable and also investing your time into um, avenues of developing your socioeconomic, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people, your socioeconomic conditions. Um, so you have to choose between... For example, a very practical example is if I have to follow up the presidential election petition tribunal, that would involve me waking up in the morning, getting on a bus or in a cab or in an Uber and driving to the court. And that's not cheap, especially in a country now where a liter of fuel has more than, you know, even tripled and even more, we're paying for fuel now even more, more than four times what it used to be before the election. Um, and so the, the cost of living has also jumped. So people are having to choose, do I invest my energies into participating in governance issues and holding leaders accountable, or do I look for food to eat? Um, and that's really what it is right now. And at the end of the day, the battle for survival would always, always win. Um, and eventually, we're left with a, a mass of people who just feel very disillusioned. Mm. Um, and the idea of uh, voter apathy, because I, I think we did talk about it uh, in the run-up to the election when we, we you, you gave us uh, that brilliant analysis of what was taking place. Um, now, do you fear that there will be a difficulty to mobilize, uh, or is there a worry among activists uh, uh, that there, there will be a difficulty to mobilize the youth vote in the coming elections if they continue to have this vacuum of confidence, this issue of not, lack of confidence in the independent electoral commission? say no and i'm saying no because i have seen what the wave of change feels and look like here in nigeria and a lot of other young people have seen and felt what the wave of change looks like 
So it's just like uh, you're trying to build a 10-story building and you've succeeded to build the foundation, but you've run out of money. Um, the fact that you pause or you stop does not mean that you don't have a chance to continue when you do get the resources to continue. Um, but what might be helpful would be a sense of leadership. One of the things that's lacking with all of the movements that we have is that these movements are leaderless. We don't have anyone taking responsibility on leading and driving people towards a cohesive idea for change. So among the activisms and all the activists and, and all of the groups that are convening together, they seem to be uh, uh, more doing that in more of a, uh, what I call it, in, in silos, and it's been done in different blocks. So we need a, co a cohesive idea and someone who can rally around people and get people together to, to sort of um, get people to their goal. And we haven't seen that yet. Mm. Um, and once that happens, I strongly believe that we can leverage the impact from the work that has already been done and build on that impact to do more and to do better. But to do that, we also have to do that hand in hand with providing uh, uh, socioeconomic uh, a sense of livelihood for people because, like I said, it's now a battle of survival. And so the strategies that would work really right now are the ones that also take these socioeconomic conditions hand in hand with the need for advocacy, with the need for accountability, but not necessarily telling a bunch of people who are hungry and impoverished that they need to fight for, for, the, for their rights because, honestly, a lot of people are out of steam. That was Evelyn Epele. She's with the Citizens Participation and Governance Capstone Group of the School of Politics, Policy and Governance in Lagos, Nigeria. And with that, we come to the end of our show today. Many thanks to all of you for tuning in, whether you joined us online at voaafrica.com or on the radio on our FM and shortwave stations around the continent. Remember to connect with us on our social media platforms at VOA Upfront on Instagram and on Facebook. Until next time, I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington, wishing you a great week ahead, Africa. Mm -hmm.